and welcome to On The Ledge podcast and this week we're charming snakes. The plant kind. Greetings listeners, my name is Jane Perrone. I'm the host of On The Ledge podcast, the houseplant podcast that takes you deep into the world of plants in your home. And in this week's episode, I'll be chatting about Sansevierias, aka the snake plant, those wonderful tough succulents, with expert Dr. Colin Walker. And I'll be answering a question about repotting hesitancy. Ellen, Margot, Caroline, what unites these three people? They've earned themselves a place in my good books for becoming patrons of On The Ledge. And it is this band of more than 300 people who really helped to keep the show alive. So thank you to those three new patrons this week. If you want to find out how to join them, just check the show notes, janeperone.com. And thanks also to, I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Nan Katie Did or Nan Catchy Did? I don't know. Anyway, you're from the US and you wrote a lovely review for On The Ledge, so thank you to you. Snake plants, aka Sansevierias, are the Mr. T of the succulent world. Chunky, funky and oh so tough. And they are something that I've been wanting to delve into on On The Ledge for many a moon. And finally, this week, it's happening. I'm bringing back Dr. Colin Walker, president of the British Cactus and Succulent Society, biologist and expert on this genus to talk all things snake plant. From propagation and pollination to that taxonomic controversy, we'll cover it all. The taxonomic controversy, I'll just preface that by saying that I'm still calling Sansevieria Sansevieria, despite the fact they've now been placed into the genus Dracaena following genetic research into their DNA. As we'll hear from Colin, it doesn't have to spoil our fun of this wonderful group of plants, which really do make a fabulous addition to anyone's houseplant collection. So, without further ado, let's get cracking and hear my chat with Dr. Colin Walker. Well, hi, folks. I'm, I'm Colin Walker. I'm currently a president of the British Cactus and Succulent Society, but my eight-year presidency is just about to come to an end. I have been interested in growing and studying succulents for just over 50 years. I'm now retired, so I can spend more of my time looking after them, growing them and writing about them. <clears throat> I have a large collection uh, in two greenhouses, a conservatory and a porch. I currently live uh, in Scotland, just north of Glasgow, so the growing conditions are a bit challenging to what I was used to in Bedfordshire. We're here to talk about Sansevierias, and this has been a subject that people have been requesting pretty much since day dot of making this podcast and we're finally talking about them devoting a whole episode to them and these plants have grown hugely in popularity in the last few years but I wonder whether you could tell us start off by telling us a bit about where and how they grow in the wild and what conditions are like I'm guessing they have to be tough because they're from a place where they're not getting much moisture. Sansferas, a genus of about 80 species, mainly distributed in Africa. Um, also, there's a couple in Madagascar. Uh, then going east, they occur in Arabia. And as far east as Burma, there's a Sansevieria burmanica. <laughs> I've only ever encountered Sansevieras in the wild once. We were on a safari in the Eastern Cape province of South Africa. And there I encountered what I um, believe to be Sansevieria hyacinthoides. There are about five species native to South Africa. And this was growing in, um, I would say, sort of grassland, really. So it wasn't a particularly arid environment. In fact, the Eastern Cape province is quite moist, to be honest. Uh, so the southern species uh, don't really occur in particularly arid environments, but going north, 
so if you go uh, northwest into Namibia, Angola, and then going northeast through Kenya up into the Arabian Peninsula, obviously conditions get more arid. They will grow in very arid environments there where the rainfall is very low. So they occur in quite a range of habitats. Uh, and they are tough. They are very tough plants, so they can uh, survive extreme environments that are very dry. But also, you know, some of them come from very moist environments as well. So that kind of relates to the way we uh, we grow them in cultivation. They're, they're tough beasts, basically. I've seen... Uh division of i don't know where i read this that they can i think actually it was in a book that i've got in electronic form only by an american writer called hermine stover does that name ring a bell um, and i think it was in there that i read that she classifies them into soft leaf and hard leaf forms I would use a different sort of breakdown. I would call them, the, the soft-leaved ones, I would call them thin-leaved rather than soft-leaved. Because to be honest, all Sansevieras have got tough leaves and they're tough because they're full of fibres. Uh, and uh, they have been used as a source of fibre commercially. Called, it, it's called bowstring hemp. So the same way that agave sisolana is used as a source of sisal, because agaves are very fibrous, sansevieras have in the past been used as a source of bowstring hemp fibres. So all sansevieras have tough fibrous leaves. But the kind of common commonly encountered species trifasciata it has a long thin strap-like leaf it's not very succulent it's quite thin but it's very fibrous so that's at one end of the spectrum the ones that i particularly like are at the other end of the spectrum which have very fleshy leaves they're still quite fibrous but they're very succulent so if you cut a section through some of these leaves uh, it's circular in section or deeply channeled so they are very succulent. So that that's kind of like a crude division. So the thin, thin-leaved ones and the, the very, the very fleshy, much more succulent-leaved ones. And in terms of succulent enthusiasts, it's it's the really succulent ones that are, are, are more interesting, and in some respects more challenging to go to grow because they tend to be slower growing. And obviously they're very fibrous. Does that mean that not much actually eats them? in their native homes uh, i mean i i seem i'm thinking i've got some phrase in my brain god knows where it comes from that is elephants chewing gum <laughs> which possibly indicates that elephants eat them but I, I don't know where i'm getting that from i have no <laughs> evidence for for elephants eating sansevieras i've never read anything about that and to be honest i can't imagine elephants eating these things because they're quite tough and there's not much the you know, the, the, the thin-leaved ones don't have much moisture in them. Elephants tend to like fleshy plants. They, they're renowned for eating baobabs, for instance, because they are very mm. fleshy. So I can't imagine elephants eating them. To be honest, in terms of animals eating sansevieras, I wouldn't have thought there's much danger of that. Certainly in cultivation, I find sansevieras pest-free, to be honest. I mean, my cacti and um, what crassulaceae are quite prone to mealybugs. I mean, that's a common pest of succulents. Uh, they don't seem to attack Sansevieria. So in terms of pests and diseases, Sansevieria is a pretty trouble-free in my experience. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a pest on any of mine. I can't, I can't recall having one. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody somewhere with a, with a Sansevieria with mealybugs. Interestingly, these, these plants are often classified as unkillable. But I'm often a bit concerned that people suggest putting them into, oh, they're very good in, in you know, deep shade, um, which seems counterintuitive to me, given where they come from and that they are succulent plants. If you actually want your Sansevieria to really grow and thrive, what, what are the best conditions for it? I have only ever killed Sansevierias when accidentally they'd been in a... Well, no, it wasn't accidentally. They were in a greenhouse and accidentally the greenhouse heating failed. Uh, so I had um, uh, no heating for about five days in a greenhouse and I lost only six Sansevierias. They were completely killed. So they got frosted. So the first point is Sansevieras make ideal houseplants. They love warm conditions. 
So I have virtually no Sansevierias in my greenhouses. All my Sansevierias are either in the house as houseplants or in the conservatory. And I guess nowhere does the temperature ever drop below 12 degrees. And obviously higher temperatures are good. You know, so they love centrally heated rooms. So that's the first point. Higher temperatures. They do not like low temperatures. And they do need light. They're plants, so they need light. They are tolerant of low light conditions, but they won't grow as well. So they will survive shade, but they won't grow so well and they probably wouldn't flower. So I have most of mine in a conservatory that's got a a plastic roof. So it is dappled light, but there's a lot of good light. But it's, it's not full sunlight, I would say. Really strong sunlight could damage them, I suspect, but I've never had that trouble either. So, grown as houseplants, I would advise give them as much light as possible. Sunny, south-facing windowsills are probably best if if you've only got windowsills. Conservatory, they make perfect conservatory plants, so long as you heat the conservatory during the winter. So, as good a light as you can give them, uh, warm temperatures... And now, when it comes to watering, this varies a lot depending on the conditions. I grow mine in a in a mixture of two parts John and this one part grit, so it's fairly free draining, and I water all my Santaveras modestly once a week all the year round, so I don't stop in the winter. My friend Gordon Rowley, who's no longer with us, used to grow his on the windowsill, and he used to have saucers under his pots. And he used to keep water in the saucers 24-7. So for a lot of Sansevieras, they can take a lot of water, but it does depend on having a really free-draining compost. If you just use John Innes or one of these standard horticultural mixers with no grit or added drainage, they can rot off if you give them too much water. And to be honest, a lot of houseplant growers do tend to overwater so I guess my advice is modest water once a week if you're growing them as houseplants. And they thrive under those conditions. But the other side of the coin is they can thrive on neglect. You can go away and leave a Sansevieria for a month. You know, if you go off on a summer holiday and you're away for three or four weeks, you can leave them with no water and they will be fine when you come back. So they do thrive on neglect, but they do... Uh, sorry, they do survive on neglect, but they do thrive with a bit, or shall we say, minimum TLC. Yeah, it's an interesting point about the potting mix. I think that lots of people buy these plants, and the way they come often from the Dutch nurseries is in a mix that's fine for them in the Dutch nursery, but when you get them home, is just too moisture-retaining. So it is. A, I always sort of say to people, well, have you repotted it yet? Uh, because uh, I think that mix, if you water generously, just keeps too much moisture around those roots. And they are quite amazing, the roots of Sansevierias. I don't know if all of them are orange, but I certainly know that a couple I've repotted recently have had lovely orange roots, which was kind of interesting. It's not just a root system. It's an underground stem for most of them. So What you're describing as being orange isn't actually the root, it's the underground stem. So they have some very thick underground stems called rhizomes. It's it's a bit like an iris, to be honest. You know, most of the stem is actually buried underground. And what you're saying is orange is actually is actually the stem. And some of them need a lot of space for that. I got a, a, a plant that was collected in Tanzania last year. And the leaves are about 10, 12 centimetres long. But the plant, because it's got this big, thick, chunky underground rhizome, uh, needed a pot that's a good 15 centimetres tall. So most of the plant is, it's like an iceberg, it's it's underground. You can actually use that uh, to propagate them. So I guess we'll come on to propagation later on, but we're talking about roots at the moment. So those underground stems, you can take sections of those, chop them up, take sections and plant them and they will, uh, you know, send out shoots. The other thing while we're talking about roots and potting compost is... Quite a lot of Sansevieras don't like 
being disturbed. They don't like their root system disturbed. So what I tend to do is leave them alone in the pot until they're absolutely pot bound and then repot them. Because uh, it can take several months for them to kind of establish in their new pot when you've repotted them. That's an interesting point. And I think, I mean, I've had the experience of finding a p- plant that's been inside a, a plastic pot and then in a cash pot. And I've lifted out the, the in, inner pot and discovered that it's literally busting out of the of the inner pot because they're just so, uh, it's get, they get so huge. And uh, I guess that's the secret to their success of being able to be uh, very tough. And they're storing a lot of water and nutrients in, the, in that rhizome. I tend not to use plastic pots very much for Sansevierus because I'm growing them indoors. So I want them in attractive pots. But I have occasionally... Uh, had uh, plants burst through a plastic pot because there's so much underground growth yeah they'll they'll burst through absolutely yeah and there are loads of different sansevieria species on the market now absolutely loads of them i mean i i was just looking at um some pictures recently of the whale fin sansevieria sansevieria masoniana um where where they're selling them with etchings of like they've somehow marked the leaves to make a picture on the side of the leaf. Did I send you a picture of that? Yes, I hadn't seen that before, so thank you for that. It's like, um, you know, these garden centres uh, that sell cacti with dried flowers stuck into them. You know, it's 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 not natural, is it? I hate that kind of thing. No, it's very strange. I don't I don't understand what the uh, rationale is, but um it's I guess they're selling plants, somebody's buying them. There are so many different species that are popular now and also I know you're not keen on ver- that keen on variegation, but the variegated forms are popular. I recently got hold of my dream Sansevieria, which is Bantel's Sensation. I've read, I've been reading up on it, that it's actually quite hard to grow <laughs> for, relative for a Sansevieria. But um, so far, so good on that one. Do you have to be careful if you're trying to propagate a variegated one? Will it will it grow true from uh, a rhizome um, division? Will the will the variegation stay? Right. Okay. Uh, if you want to talk about propagation, just generally, there's three main ways. Uh, well, actually, four main ways of propagating Sansevieria. So, th- the slowest process is growing from seed. I have never done that, to be honest, and seed isn't very readily available. So, you know. That, that's kind of a specialist way to propagate sansevierias. Uh, then the easiest way is to take cuttings. So some plants like sansevieria parva uh, form very large clumps and you can just take offsets, cuttings. Parva is one that produces overground uh, stolons. So it sends shoots along the, the, the soil surface and you could just take one of those shoots uh, and uh, they'll reroot quite quickly. So dry off the cut surface for a, f- you know, a few days and pop it into some compost and that um, will take quite easy. So we've already talked about the underground stems, the rhizomes. So you can just take sections of those and again, dry them off uh, before you put them into compost and they will root and shoot. Uh, and the final quite easy way, although it's quite a slow process, is to take leaf cuttings. So Sansevierias come beautifully from leaves. You can take a leaf of one of the really succulent ones like Cylindrica. So you could have a leaf that maybe is 30 or 40 centimetres long. You could actually chop that up into half a dozen bits and each bit will root, uh, but it's quite slow. Um, sometimes it takes six months, even a year, for uh, a leaf cutting to root. And maybe um, uh, even uh, you know another six months before it will send out shoots. But eventually, we'll get shoots from these leaf cuttings. And I have had virtually zero failure rate with that. Right. Now, the question you asked me was about the variegates. Now, that is slightly tricky. Uh, Variegation is quite a complex process because you've got different layers with different cells. And quite often what happens if you take a cutting off a variegated sansevieria, it's the lean part that will send out shoots and the variegate doesn't. So, 
if you've got a variegated sansevieria, really, you shouldn't be trying to propagate it from a leaf. You need to take it from a shoot. Or if it's got underground stolon, uh, sorry, underground uh, rhizomes, you can take sections of that which will root. So a variegated sansevieria will propagate from an underground uh, rhizome and you will keep the variegation. Yes, yeah, so that so I've seen this people do this. I've not tried it myself because it always seems very much simpler just to divide a plant and and make those rhizome divisions. That, that just seems obvious, but I have seen lots of people on Instagram do this where they get sections of leaf and root it. And I always think, well, why are you bothering with that variegated plant? Because then you look at the cutting they've ended up with or the, the the young plant they've ended up with and it's the shoots are coming from the green section and you just got a plain green leaf which presumably isn't well I, I guess it perhaps that's preferable if you're not into variegation but it just seems like I don't know I'm not sure why people bother with them with the leaf uh, cuttings as you say uh, you're going to lose the variegation and it's very slow are there any variegated Sansevieria that you do like? I know you're not a great fan, but are there any that you'll make an exception for? Uh, Bantle Sensation. I love that. Yes, that, that, yeah. that. And I've got one or two um, Trifasciata harnii variegates, and I've got um, a variegated Parva, uh, but that's about it. I've got a few hybrids. Now, the hybrids are a different matter. Um, I've I've named one uh, Sansevieria IKEA because a friend bought it from IKEA without a name. So I, <laughs> I I've called it Sansevieria IKEA. That's one of the thin-leaved forms, but I love that because it flowers annually. It really is a good grower. Uh, there's another one very similar called Punky. I think both of these probably originated from a, a, an old hybrid called Fernwood. I don't know what the parents are, but this is a very thin, long-leaved form, but they, they flower very well. So we'll come on to flowering a bit later, I suppose, but they are great for flowering. And I've just got a new uh, hybrid, um, which is uh, Philipsy cross with pinguicula uh that's going to be quite slow growing so i'll see how that uh, that does so i'm more into the hybrids rather than the variegates i have to say in terms of sansevieras let's come on to the flowers because you did mention them there i i have not had any of mine flower i'm very very disappointed <laughs> can you tell me how i get mine to flower i mean i've got a f few different species I've grown Sansevieras for over 20 years and I guess I've flowered 30 or 40 different ones. There's no quick fix to getting them to flower. It's choosing the right plants, I would say. So I think they will all flower, but it can take time. So some need to be very large to flower and some will flower quite small and flower regularly. So my advice, if you want flowers, is choose the right flowering uh, species or cultivars. So I've mentioned Punky, I've mentioned Ikea, Fernwood. They all flower for me annually. Um, and one of the best ones for flowering is Sansevieria francisii. It's quite small growing. It has leaves in five tiers, uh, but I have it in flower every year. Uh, so that's a good one for flowers. The other side of the coin is Trifasciata, which I've only ever flowered once. You see quite often very large plants of Trifasciata and, you know, they don't flower very often. So if you want flowers, that is absolutely one not to go for. So it's not a question of any particular trick to getting them to flower. It's growing the right plants that will flower when they're small and will flower annually. And is it worth the wait? Oh, absolutely. Sansevieria flowers are beautiful. There are two groups of Sansevierias when it comes to flowering. Most of them have tall spikes. Some of them have spikes, ooh, up to a metre tall. The really big ones have large branch spikes, which can be one and a half, two metres tall. The other group produce the inflorescence underground, so the flowers emerge at soil level. 
The only one I flowered in that small group is Hawleyi, and that only flowered once, but the flowers were magnificent. All Sansevieras are night flowering, so the flowers open late afternoon, and each flower only lasts one night, and they produce the most gorgeous, beautiful scents. Hyacinth-like, I would uh, I would describe them as. And if you have a flower spike uh, that has... I don't know, 20, 30 flowers open in a night. You come down in the next morning and the room is full of this absolutely gorgeous scent. But each flower only lasts one night. But if you've got a flower spike with oh, up to 100 buds on it, you could have flowers over uh, a course of a week, say. They, they have this scent uh, because they attract moths. They're pollinated by moths, so that's why most of them don't have much colour. Some of them have a tinge of pink. There's one brown one, but most of them are white. Moths are attracted by the scent and not by the colour. So, um, yeah, that's why they're scented, to attract the pollinators, uh, which are moths. I'm glad it's it's worth the wait. Well, I'm glad you like Bantel Sensation because I was searching for it so long. And I, I mean, mine's only a little, mine is a rhizome division. So it has about four leaves right now. But I was panicking because lots of people said, oh, it's quite, quite difficult. And I heard from other people who had a small a piece of, of rhizome and some leaves <clears throat> and they were struggling. But mine seems to be doing OK. It's slow growing, so you just need patience. I've never done this, but I've always fancied having some kind of mixed Sansevieria trough or dish or large pot arrangement with various different species and hybrids of different heights, shapes and colours. Is that a good idea or is it better to keep them in individual pots? I've only ever done it once. Um, I had, uh, when I was uh, working, there was a planter in a, uh, a corridor uh, which had nothing in it. It was, oh, a metre, metre and a half long trough and it was empty. So I purloined it and I planted three plants in it. I had Zamiaconcus, of which I know you're very fond of. I had a dragon tree, Dracaena dracau, and the third plant was a very large plant of uh, Sansevieria fisheri, which is a which is a very attractive cylindrical leaved uh, Sansevieria. And that planting, that was a mixed planting, that worked very well. I had a very well drained compost, and uh, and they thrived. So there's, I have never done any other mixed planting with Sansevierias, but I see no reason why not. If you put them in a trough, which is what I did, with no holes in the bottom, you just need to be very careful with the watering. So a very free-draining compost. If it was a long, large trough like I used, I would. I think I put pebbles in the bottom uh, and top dressed with grit. So, yeah, I see no reason why not. Try it and see. There's all sorts of containers available. But if it's a container that doesn't have holes in the bottom, you have to be very, very careful. Go easy on the watering. Or most of my Sansevieras are grown in glazed ceramic uh, or terracotta pots and they've all got holes in the bottom. So if I get a charity shop pot that I rather like that doesn't have holes, I drill holes in the bottom to make sure it's free draining. And do you just match that with a saucer of some kind to catch the drips? It depends where the plant's sitting. If it's just on the conservatory floor, it's not so critical. But obviously, if it's on a windowsill... Um, oh, uh, windowsills, I've quite often got plastic uh, trays... So the, the rather attractive glazed pots are sitting on a plastic uh, rectangular uh, tray to catch the water, yeah. So I don't get in trouble with my better half for uh, letting water dribble <laughs> off the, the windowsill. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Dracaena there, which brings us on to the slightly controversial issue of the taxonomy of Sansevieria, because I don't know who's in charge of this, but someone, some taxonomist somewhere has decided that Sansevieria is actually in the genus Dracaena. I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get quite get used to that. But I mean, when you say Dracaena, I think of things like Dracaena marginata, 
and the corn plant to see a fragrance and they don't seem that similar can we just ignore this taxonomic change or is it something very important that we need to all be sort of switching our language on the background to this is uh this group of plants we're talking about oh nearly 200 species now if you put the two together so dracaena the dragon tree uh, genus and sansevieria as with a lot of plant families genera uh, a lot of molecular work has been done comparing gene sequences and just to simplify the story here <coughs> what has been discovered is that sansevieria is not mm, from its genes significantly different from dracaena and all sansevierias on that basis have been transferred to dracaena so every sansevieria has now a new name or the same species name but has now been transferred to dracaena that is based on gene sequencing comparisons and this is happening all the time in lots of different plant groups if you think about it, the 200 species that we end up with in Dracaena are not that divergent, to be honest. There's a wide range of forms, but it's not as vast as some other genera. So Euphorbia, let's just quickly compare it to Euphorbia. Euphorbia is a huge genus. It's got 2,000 species. And Euphorbia ranges from tiny little geophytic uh, plants to great huge trees. And that has expanded recently because... A few small genera have been uh, shown to be not distinct on the molecular basis. So the evidence is quite strong that Sansevieria and Dracaena are one in the same genus and they all have names in Dracaena. Now, uh, there aren't taxonomic police around here. So if you want to st <laughs> still call them Sansevierias, you can. And to be honest, although as a scientist, I accept this new classification I still call them Sansevierians. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde character here. So uh, I've accepted splits from aloe, for instance. So there are several small genera that have been broken away from aloe. So there's aloe dendron, aloe, aloe ampelos, kumara. So I am readily adopted that. But to be honest, I'm a bit of a, uh, an old stickler here and I still call my Sansevieras Sansevieria. And, you know, the rest of the planet can still call them Sansevierias if they so want. Uh, the the, the Sansevieria Dracaena police are not going to come away and throw all your plants in, in the bin because you've got them wrongly named. It's only significant, really, if it comes to shows. So if you had a class that said uh, Dracaena, the show committee or the judge has got to be careful to make sure that they don't NAS, i.e. not a schedule, a Sansevieria uh, that has been put uh, in a Dracaena class or vice versa. So that's the only, in, in terms of horticulture, that's the only significant place it's important. So I, for one, at least at the moment, are quite happy to call them Sansevierias. It does seem to raise emotions on, I'm looking on various Sansevieria forums and Facebook groups, and there's some very strong opinions out there. But I mean, I, I'm like you, I kind of, well, I'm, I'm just going to accept that the taxonomy is correct. But I guess, you know, like a lot of plants, where the genus has changed over the years, we we kind of adopt the old genus name almost as a common name. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I mean, there are big controversies. I mean, the Sansevieria world is quite small, really. Um, a big controversy raged over acacia. So, you know, acacia was split up, again, on the basis of molecular studies, and that was incredibly controversial. So some of these changes are widely adopted quite quickly, and others, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of inertia and people want to stick with what they're used to. And as I say, apart from issues on the show bench, it, it to be honest, doesn't really matter. Uh, as a scientist, I have to say, though, I do accept that Sansevieria is now part of Dracaena. But um, as a horticulturalist, I still call them Sansevieria. So there you go. That's me being truly Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> I've just thought of a question which I forgot to ask you when we were talking about roots. Is there a reason why that rhizome is orange? Does that serve any useful purpose to the plant? 
Pass. I've no idea. Um, I don't. That's a very interesting question, Jane. Why is a Sansevieria rhizome orange? And I'm afraid I haven't a clue. Yeah, obviously, there must be some pigment in there, but what? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm sorry. You've got me on that one. We may never know, but perhaps somebody will have an answer and suggest something. To be honest, in science, there are far more questions that don't have answers than questions that do have answers. That's that's the fascination of science for me, to be honest. Yeah, indeed. And there's one thing I wanted to ask you, which has been a question in my mind for a long time. And it concerns that actually the Sansevieria that's on my podcast logo, which is, I think, goes by various common names, including witch's fingers, Sansevieria cylindrica. And I've uh, this species or, and various other cylindrical leaved species and hybrids seem to cause people a lot of problems because they buy the plants and oftentimes they seem to be leaf cuttings that have been rooted and shoved in the pot, sometimes in a different shape than would be natural. And people discover they haven't actually got a plant, they've got a selection of leaf cuttings. And then also when new leaves start to grow, the Sansevieria cylindrica leaves aren't cylindrical when they first come out which really throws people that they've got a different plant but I'm presuming that it's just that the leaves start out one shape and mature into that cylinder am I right? Quite a lot of Sansevierias have two rather different growth forms so uh, I mentioned earlier uh, Sansevieria fisheri this is the classic so fisheri has two distinct growth forms. So its juvenile form is a flat rosette. So these are flattish, thin, thinnish leaves, a flat rosette. As it matures, it produces upright, vertical, cylindrical leaves, and that's the adult form, okay? So I've got a clump uh, that has grown from a leaf. So I've taken a cylindrical leaf, I've rooted it, and it's produced shoots. This has taken about three years to produce a clump, oh, eight centimetres across. So we've got a, a cylindrical leaf that's rooted and around it, it's got three or four flattish rosettes. Uh, so that's that's standard growth form for quite a lot of Sansevieras. And uh, the one you're talking about, Cylindrica, isn't quite the same, but it's similar I've got the plant sitting next to me now on my desk and I have done the same with that. So I've got a, a, a leaf cutting that's, oh, 25 centimetres long. It rooted, it's taken about two years and it's got lots of new shoots at the base. The early ones uh, are channeled, they are thin. So what people are seeing is the young immature stage. And if you keep it long enough, let it grow, they will all develop the typical cylindrical leaf. If you buy one of these pots from a garden centre that's got half a dozen uh, separate leaves, what I would advise you to do is pot them all up separately. So you've got six separate plants and just leave them to grow. And eventually you will get clumps which will just have the cylindrical leaf. It will take several years because it's not a fast grower, uh, but in time it will. So, yeah, I, I do object to garden centres or nurseries doing that because you get, you, you buy a plant that looks okay, but it isn't actually a proper rosette. When you depot it, as you say, you've got half a dozen separate plants. Uh, so it's they shouldn't be doing that, but they do that because they get a plant that they can sell quicker. Yeah, and it happens with other species as well. You know, you often see it with um, tropical plants where they put lots of seedlings in the pot. So you think it's one plant, but it's actually uh, lots of seedlings, which then outcompete each other and you've got a problem. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things, I guess... It's intriguing. And at least, you know, if you know about it, you can you can solve the problem. But yeah, I suspect when you have all those root cuttings in a pot, it's not necessarily um, going to lead you to ultimate success with that plant. Well, it will. If you, if you, you just have to have patience, Jane, because it, it's not a fast growing species. So Cylindrica is a big growing plant. I mean, it can have leaves a metre, a metre and a half long. So what I've got here is a very young plant but just take 
you know, just have patience and you'll get there eventually. I think with Sansevieria, that is the key. They are quite slow growing. The hybrids I talked about, you know, Ikea, Punky, Fernwood, they are fast growing. I got, uh, you know, a single cutting and within two years, I've got a six, uh, I've got a 15 centimetre pot full of it, you know. And it also sends out uh, above ground uh, stolons. So, you know, some of them are fast growing. So you've got a range. The slowest growing plant I've got is Sansevieria fisteri. It has big, thick, chunky leaves. I was given that plant 20 years ago and it is still only in a 12 centimetre pot. And goodness knows when I'll get to that you know get to see that in flower so some are very fast growing and some are exceptionally slow growing and that's that's the interest isn't it if they all did the same thing wouldn't life be a bit boring you know exactly we haven't talked about feeding i guess it's the same rule as with other cacti and succulents that you don't want to overfeed yeah i feed everything uh during the spring summer and autumn once a fortnight i use kempak uh three usually so yeah my sansevierias get fed moderately throughout spring summer and early autumn i tend to stop feeding them in the winter so although i keep watering them i tend not to feed them so yeah it's just the standard feeding regime for any cacti and succulents there's nothing special about sansevierias and that uh, and that school Marvellous. Well, I'm sure that uh, I will be adding further to my, my Sansevieria collection. They're all on a, on a round coffee table and I'm thinking, oh, only two thirds of the coffee table's covered right now. I've got more room to add some more. So, yes, I just keep sneaking them in and hope that my husband doesn't notice. <laughs> well, I'm going to send you some photographs so people can view some of my images on, on your website. I, I think I've got three or four of flowers and so I've I've got about 15 photographs I've selected for you. Fantastic. Well, they will be a really great addition to the show notes. So, uh, yes, I would encourage listeners to go and check those out and uh, have a look at the plants that we've been talking about. Thank you very much, Colin. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you to Dr. Colin Walker for joining me to talk about snake plants. And I've come out into the garden to answer this week's question of the week because well it's rather hot today and I fancy a sniff of my roses wow yes this is um, a beautiful pink rose definitely not a house plant but it smells absolutely gorgeous and if you look at my Instagram I've done a reel of some of the roses in my garden if you want to check them out but let's turn to the question I'm just going to plonk myself on the grass here and get into it and it comes from Eliza who says that despite a love for ferns I suppose like most humans I am a fern killer Uh, well me too I've killed a fair few ferns in my time Um, but Eliza has one fern that has been in her possession for three years and is still alive and doing reasonably well, Eliza writes. In fact, it's a monster. And looking at the pictures, yep, I can see that is true. It's enormous. Not so much of a fern killer after all. Oh, look, Wolfie. Hi, Wolfie. Wolfie's just come up for a cuddle and some sunbathing. Hi, Wolfie. In case you're new to the show, Wolfie is my lurcher and show mascot and a very good dog. Right, okay, sorry Eliza, getting distracted here. So, Eliza wants to know what to do about repotting this large fern. And she's worried that basically it's a bit of a monster and she's not sure where to start and what she can do. Now, I would say, looking at this fern, that it's in the prime of life, it's doing well. I think it's a... terris which is p-t-e-r-i-s genus i suspect it is terris cretica and this is one of the easiest ferns to keep so that's good news for you eliza i think it's one of the toughest ferns there is and i would say the main thing to say is don't worry too much about repotting it assuming that you're in the northern hemisphere and it's spring slash early summer 
now is a really good time to tackle this task. And with a big plant like this, yes, repotting it may cause a temporary setback, but the plant is big enough and strong enough to deal with that shock and will actually benefit from a repot. Eliza's got a self-watering device, uh, a yellow bottle stuck in the top, which is providing water, which is a great idea for ferns. Any kind of self-watering really works because it keeps the moisture steady, which is what they love. As you'll remember if you listened to the plant rescuer episode last week, episode 186. So I would say, how do you know when to repot this plant? Well, you're obviously considering it, which must mean you've seen perhaps some kind of signs that the plant is, well, maybe getting too big for its pot. Maybe, well, it looks like you've got some roots coming out of the top and generally the pot looks rather small in comparison to the size of the plant. I think you're just going to have to go in there and take the pot off. You may need to cut it away with a big plant like that with all those roots pouring out the top. It may be difficult to dislodge. So be prepared to get in there with a pair of really substantial scissors and cut away the pot. Obviously, in an ideal world, it's good to avoid cutting the pot so that you can reuse it. Assuming it's plastic, you know, you want to get as many uses as possible out of a plastic pot Um, in sustainability terms i grow a lot of my plants in plastic pots and they get reused time after time after time i never buy plastic pots i either reuse ones i've already got or i ask around and somebody's always got something to donate so i think you can get it out of that pot and assess what's going on I would take that opportunity to maybe trim some of the more wayward roots. Again, the plant will be able to cope with this. It's got a lot of roots there and it's got a good set of foliage on it. So don't worry too much about taking off some of those roots if you just find you're struggling. So, yeah, take out the pot, have a look. If you've got a situation where you've got a very matted root ball... And it's very hard to see what's going on. Again, don't be afraid to like get a serrated knife or a pruning saw and just cut across the bottom. It sounds really brutal, but sometimes it can be really helpful because if you've got a situation where the roots are all matted and there's no way for those roots to escape out into the new compost, you've got a problem on your hands in that they may just start circling around that root ball and may not establish well in the new pot but i would say assuming that that's not the case tease out some of those roots so they've got so they're going in the right direction into that new compost and put it into a slightly larger pot again if you're trimming roots think about balance so making sure that if you trim some roots you're also trimming a bit of foliage that means the plant's kind of got a balance between the root system and the foliage that it has to support but I reckon go for it. Ferns like uh, a you know, reasonably moisture retentive potting mix. So I would do something like a regular house plant potting mix, peat free if you possibly can, as I always say on the show. And you could add a bit of vermiculite to that. You could add some fine orchid bark. You could add some activated charcoal. Um, if you are using a self-watering system of some kind, Um, then you may want to make the drainage a bit more sharp. So rather than vermiculite, you might be putting something like perlite in there. But this fern looks like it's doing really well. Don't panic. Have confidence and give it a whirl. Even if the plant, even if if it goes wrong, the plant will be fine. I have confidence in this one. I think you're going to be doing well, Eliza, and you have done well. So take comfort. Um... The other thing to say is if you don't repot it, what's going to happen? Well, if you decide not to repot, I would just watch out for signs of decline in the plant. If you find that the plant is starting to look really miserable, then it could be the plant is just not able to get enough resources out of the substrate that it's in. And then you really do need to take action. Better to do it now in early uh, summer when the plant is still in active growth as opposed to waiting for an emergency in the autumn when repotting yeah it may carry slightly more risks i hope 
that helps Eliza and gives you some inspiration for your fern and you say at the end love your podcast but my husband blames you for transferring one of our rooms into a plant room okay complaints uh, can be filed to the following email address on the ledge podcast at gmail.com yes you can point all of your relatives in my direction to moan about this amount of space that your house plant collection is taking up and if you've got a question for on the ledge you can also use the same email address be like Eliza and include lots of information and some pictures because that helps me no end right back inside Wolfie you can stay and sunbathe heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Namaste by Jason Shaw. The ad music was Dill Pickles by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. Great to speak with you.